that's a good encouragement for me. Uh, only the Holy Spirit can make it clear to you what I'm saying right now. <laughs> um, I promise that I'm going to try and speak slower than I usually would. I'll try and neutralize my accent where I need to so everyone can understand me. The youth announcement that I just rambled through was impromptu because Jess was supposed to be doing it. I think we've got a picture of Jess. There's Jess. So anyone who doesn't know, uh, her family were on a um, ski or snowboard uh, break just over Christmas and they got an extra day because their travel was delayed. And so they booked passes to have one more day on the snow and 10 minutes in, Jess fell and broke both wrists. So I had to jump up into her uh, announcement for her this morning, but uh, we pray that Jess will be better soon, that there won't be much pain. I just want to start by saying, um, I'm, I'm sorry for the talk that you're about to receive. I've, I've already said this might be the one that gets me kicked out of church. Um, you had a nice uh, talk last week with Philip where he was encouraging you to trust God in the year ahead. I'm afraid I'm going to start the year by challenging you. This is quite a challenging talk. Um, I'm just going to start by reading what we know as Christians as the Great Commission. This is from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. The 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This was just after Jesus' resurrection. He'd appeared to over 500 people across 40 days, and he was returning to the Father. And his command, his last command to his disciples was go make disciples of all nations. Now that's quite a challenging uh, commission for us to make disciples of all nations. And so to, to unpack that a bit, what I'm going to talk about today, um, well, if there's one thing I want you to leave today with, it's that a Christian should aim to make disciples who worship, evangelize, use apologetics, and disciple other people. Now, I'm sure you all understand that sentence, so I don't need to elaborate on it at all. There's lots of big words there, and so today's talk is about Christian jargon. And now I realize I'm in an international crowd, so people might not actually understand then the word jargon. So it's Christian terminology, which terminology is also quite a big word as well. So today's talk is what words that followers of Jesus may use mean. And I don't think I can be any clearer than that. So yeah, I'm going to explain what some of those big words mean. Do you know what that that does actually make grammatical sense. I'm sure to non-native English speakers, that is a crazy mix of words. Um, but I, I genuinely, that's what I came up with when I was trying to say what today's talk was. Um, that made sense to me. So I've got so many definitions for you today that there's 
some that are quick definitions we're going to rattle through, and then there's some that we're going to focus on. I'm actually going to ask, this is a big risk, for audience participation at times. If uh, I ask a question that requires a response, please put your hand up and I'll pick someone. Let's not all shout at me. The complicated thing is, I only want wrong answers, okay? So I want the wrong answers that you have heard to the question that I ask. So the first question is, what is a Christian? Does anybody have a wrong answer to that question? I mean, I've got plenty. No? Listen, oh, James, thank you. It starts to church and uh, read the Bible. Perfect, James. That's the answer I was hoping for. A Christian is someone who goes to church or someone who reads their Bible. I had a Christian friend who wanted to date this girl that he really, really liked. And I said, is she a nice Christian girl? And he said to me, well, she prays. <laughs> okay, there's another good definition of a Christian, someone who prays. I think you can appreciate how, uh, well, let's say wrong that answer is. A Christian does pray, but it's not the definition of a Christian. So the simplest answer I would give you is a Christian is a follower of Christ. When Philip spoke last week, he said that it's not that we believe in Jesus, it's that we follow Jesus. The interesting thing is in Acts, as the church was expanding, it says in 1126, in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. And the point there is that this religion was advancing so quickly that it needed to be defined. And that's the point of my message today, that definitions um, matter and Christian means follower of Christ. Now here's where we first start to get to the challenges. Is it easy to follow Christ? What was his teaching? To give you an example, he said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect. Thanks, Jesus. Let me get on to that. So the question is, what does it mean to follow Christ? The first challenge is a crazy one. If you want to follow the life of Christ, what he did, what's the first thing you need to do? That's rhetorical. I'm not looking for answers. First thing you need to do is walk towards a cross. That's not what anyone wants to hear. But that's the first thing you need to do. You need to die to yourself. But thankfully, Jesus said, you can be born again. So the second challenge, and this one really might make you uncomfortable in your seats. How much do you feel you're like Christ? And what are you doing to be more like him? Do you know the scriptures, for example? Uh, James actually hit on that question already. He said, some people believe a Christian is someone who reads the Bible, but notice I'm not asking, do you read the scriptures? I'm asking, do you know the scriptures? When Satan came to test Jesus in the desert, Jesus responded with scripture. He knew the scriptures. So the question is, do we know the scriptures in order to resist such temptation? 
And another thing that Jesus did was he spread the gospel. In my first talk, I defined the gospel, and I said one of the interesting things that the Bible says is that he spread the good news, and that was before he died on the cross. That was before he resurrected. So what was the good news for him? And it's that the kingdom of God is near, and that there is a way back to the Father. So that's the question. Do you spread the gospel? if you're a Christian. Now, as I said, this is a challenging talk. That was all a bit heavy. That's our first big definition. So we're going to do some quick fire ones. You can see I'm already talking quicker because I'm all excited. So the next one is God. When I was out evangelizing once, the craziest thing happened to me. I mentioned God and someone said to me, what do you mean by God? That floored me. I, I, I literally did not know how to answer that question. They had no concept of God. Most people have an idea of spirituality, of many gods, of anything, but this person, whether they were winding me up or not, winding me up, do people understand that? Making fun of me or just trying to, you know, stir me up. I don't know, but I was at a loss. And so again, for me, the definition of God is he's the creator. Everything that we see, everything that we know, he created. As Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next quick one is faith, which again, this is something that could be a long talk. Many of these could be long talks, but I think you can be concise with faith. A definition is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. And so for us, that more applies to Christianity and to Jesus. And so that definition is strong belief in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual conviction rather than proof. Now, that doesn't sit well with me. There is proof that Jesus lived on this earth. There is proof that he died for our sins. And there is proof that he resurrected. But there are things that we hope for that we do not yet see. That is true. And so Hebrews 11 verse 1 defines it as faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Next quick one is sin. Another fun one. Another simple one. Again, you could talk about doctrines of sin, but put simply, it's acts against God's law. 1 John 3 verse 4 defines it as everyone who, who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. And obviously for us, when we talk about the law, we talk about God's law. That's your quick fire round. Next is worship. Now, I'm not qualified to talk about this topic because there are more qualified people so I'm going to ask a great big nerd to come up and talk about this. Um, since Holly joined our church, she has gotten involved in worship on our team. And Raf gave her four books on uh, worship. And Holly, a kinder than great big word would be Holly's an academic. If she looks at a subject, she attacks it. She learns it from every angle. And so that's why she is going to now come up and share with us a bit about worship. Yes, please. You can go. 
Okay, I don't know if I want to do the wrong answers thing. Does anyone have a wrong answer for what is worship? There we go, thank you, Steffi. The singing that we do in the church. Um, yeah, well, I'm gonna to get to that in a minute, so. Okay, when I looked up the definition, like the sort of dictionary definition of worship, uh, it was the act of showing reverence, admiration, and devotion. And for me, it was the act that really stood out because the thing is, you can know something, you can believe something, you can know it, you can know that God is real, that he created everything and you and that he loves you and he loves everyone and that he loves you so much that he sent his only son to become flesh and lived amongst us and suffered with us and died for us so that we can be forever in his perfect love. You can know that, but then what are you gonna do about it? Do you just, do you just go about your life doing exactly whatever you want and just carrying around this knowledge with you? Just like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> or do you, do you get on your knees and you pray and you tell him how much you love him? Or do you, do you try to follow the example of Jesus? Do you love other people? Do you serve them? Do you wash their feet? I mean, metaphorically, I don't know. I don't want to wash anyone's feet, but like, you know, do you wash their feet? Do you, do you take communion and remember what he did for you? And do you gather together? And do you put aside time in your week? And do you read the Bible? Do you study the Bible? And do you listen to and play and sing music that expresses this like gratitude and love that you have for him. And so for this reason, music is often seen. I mean, we're all guilty of it. We call it, oh, we've got the worship starting now. And it's just like, yeah, sure. The music is, is the worship. It is worship. But so is every part of the Christian life is, um, is part of worship. Otherwise, what, you know, otherwise you're just a person that, that knows all this stuff. But when you do, when you act on, on what you, how you want to respond to what you know about God, what you believe he has for you, that is your acts of, of worship. So it is every part of your Christian life, but the music is a very good example and sort of like in almost many ways, like a pinnacle of worship for this reason. So because music is kind of completely pointless. <laughs> it, it serves absolutely no practical use of the running of the world. I'm, trust me, I'm a professional musician and have been all my life and people go, really? But you, do you have a proper job too? <laughs> it's like, no, <laughs> because no one sees it as like a proper thing, because it isn't. It's just purely this sort of aesthetically kind of like thing that, that everyone needs. You know, if we are filled with like love, like people write songs about it and they, they sing about it. And um, one really good example that I like is in the, set, the film, The Sound of Music, when Maria decides to, she, she feels like God is asking her to leave the nunnery, to leave the convent and to go into the world and, you know, like go forth. And, it, and she's so excited and she's got her guitar with her and she's walking up these beautiful mountains in Austria, just like looking at all the beautiful scenery filled with this excitement and joy of like, what does God want for her? Like here she is out in the world. Does she just like walk along and go like, oh, I'm really excited. No, she sings. She's like the hills are alive with the sound of music because it's such an overfill and it's an overfill of her heart. She can't contain it. So what do you do when you can't contain it? You sing. <laughs> and that's what we do. 
when the angels, when the shepherds were told of the good news of Jesus being born, the angels who, even the angels are so like, I can't believe this is happening and that Jesus is here and he's a baby and he's in the flesh. Like God is here on earth. And they sing, they burst into song. The angels sing, they can't contain it. They're all singing, glory, glory, hallelujah. They can't contain it. Another good example of a purely pointless but aesthetically pleasing thing is in, in the Bible when Mary of Bethany uh, goes to Jesus and he's like reclining at the table and she pours the perfume on his head. And everyone's like, what are you doing? You could have sold that and like given the money to the poor. That would be a practically more useful thing to do. But she pours the, the perfume on his head because she loves him so much. And he says, don't have a go at her. It pleases him because it's just an aesthetic. It's something beautiful that she can give. So that's why singing and music is just something that is of no use of, to anything apart from it's just a pure like aesthetic expression of our love and our devotion and our reverence and our gratitude and all of this. So when I just want to tell a little story of when I first started coming to this church, I um, was very confused about all this. I didn't understand it. I didn't even really, I didn't believe at this point. And I was rushing, I was late for church and it was still the summer and downstairs in the square downstairs, there was so tourists ever, it was full. And I was rushing through and there was all people eating their big full English breakfast with their pints of beer. And it was like a really sort of ugly scene, you know? <laughs> and I was like, Ugh. and as I was like rushing past someone, this, this guy went, he was calling to his wife, I think. And he was like, where can I get what's bigger, better, cheaper for me? Like he like literally said, where can I get what's bigger, better, cheaper for me? And he was really like, it just felt so like, Ugh, like greedy and sort of, Ugh. And I was like, Ugh. and so I came and I was running up the stairs. And as I was coming up the stairs, the, the, the service here had already started and I could hear everyone singing. But I knew that they weren't just singing. It wasn't like you guys were just in here singing. You were worshiping and it really hit me. And I was just like, so down here, everyone's like, where can I get what's me for me, 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 me? I want what's for me. And up here, I could hear everyone singing to something above them. Some, it wasn't about me, it was about someone above them. And it really struck me and it hit me so hard. And I was just like, huh, this isn't music. This isn't just like people jamming and singing songs. Like this is worship. And it, it had a very distinct sort of difference for me. So that was um, very interesting. And so just the other part that I really wrestled with when I first was becoming a Christian, I just, the big stumbling block I had, I was just like, but why does God want us to worship him? Like what a strange thing to want. I just couldn't understand why anyone would want worship. If anyone on earth would want people to worship them, it's just like a, so weird, like egotistical, like power hungry, like worship me, like it's what you expect of like a dictator or a des you know, like a despot sort of like bad person. Nothing good can come of someone that demands worship of people. So it just was such a stumbling block for me that God wants us to worship him. And it took me some proper Holy Spirit filled sort of revelations and lots of reading to realize that it's because I was just, I had it completely wrong and that God is perfect. He's not anything bad about him. He's completely perfect. 
And he's everything that is good. And he's everything that is love. And so if he's all of these, if he's perfectly good and perfectly, he is love. It's not just like love exists and he can love and we can love. It says that we love because he loved us first. And he's love and he's good and he's perfect. And that's why you worship him. It's this word that should only be reserved for God. Of course, anyone on earth want to worship? That's completely insane. But you worship God because he's so good and he's so perfect and he's everything that's good and everything that's love. And you want to, you want to go towards that. That's what you do want to be worshiping and you don't want to be worshiping anything else. And so um, that basically is my uh, sort of understanding of, of how we worship every part of your Christian life, but the aesthetically pointless things like music and are particularly sort of, I don't know, just because of the, the expression in them and who we worship, this perfectly good, perfect God who created everything, who loves you. And that how we worship, that why we worship and just that we worship in spirit and in truth. That's what it says to do. So it's, it can't be ritualistic. It can't be like, look, I turn up and like the songs are gone. So I'll just like sing along and that's me worshiping. You gotta worship. It has to be a heartfelt, spirit-filled, truthful worship. And that's, yeah. That's all of my uh, ideas that I would like to share with you this morning about worship. Thank you. Well, that was great. I feel a bit intimidated coming back up after that. Um, maybe should have just asked Holly to do the whole preach for me this week. Um, what came to mind as she was talking there, you know, about saying the aesthetic nature of, of worship and the, the, the non-practical side of it. Christianity or God's people is where we can see an actual practical side to it. The walls of Jericho fell because of worship. That's something we've lost. And that's something we bring back in worship. The walls for Holly fell when she was coming up from there and she was hearing selfish people and she was hearing worship, the worship broke something down in her. Yeah, awesome. Thank you, Holly. Um, so I'm just going to jump into a few, uh, a few more quick fire ones before we hit our next big topic. The next one is apostle, which is something that you'll obviously hear a lot. And to people outside the church, that might mean nothing. And to some of us inside, um, it can be confusing as well. It comes from the original Greek word apostolos, and it's another simple one. It means someone who is sent out, usually with a particular message or mission. Within Christianity, we know the 12 disciples to be disciples, and then after Jesus rose from the dead, he sent them out, and they graduated to being apostles. Now, I'll come back to that because there are times where well, here it is, Mark 3, sorry, verse 14. Um, he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and so that's where they were still disciples, but he would send them out, and that's where they were apostles. So I've slightly contradicted myself. 
they were apostles in the time that he was still alive, but once he had um, died, that was their, their full ministry. The important thing to note there is that he would send them out to preach. Modern day apostleship is something, do you know what? I'm not going to get into it, but it's something we've got to be careful about because there are people who will claim apostleship. And when it came to the to biblical apostleship, it was people who had lived with Jesus and who had seen him. So the 12 apostles and then Matthias, who was appointed to replace Judas, they were the genuine biblical apostles. And then Paul describes himself as one abnormally born because he saw Jesus and was an apostle and was sent. But modern day apostleship is something that we, we need to be wary of because we're all sent but someone who claims or gives themselves the title of apostle, um, it's uh, it's shaky ground, but let's move on from that. That's a whole other talk. Um, the next word is Messiah, which I would consider the Jewish version, and then Savior, which is the Christian one. The Jews understood that the Messiah was going to be the Savior of their people. But they also knew that he was going to come from the line of David. So generationally, he was going to be in the line of the kings of Israel. So they expected an earthly leader. They expected liberation as a people on this earth. In Christianity, we understand, though, that it's Jesus is the one who saves our souls. And I think even within the Old Testament, it's pretty clear that that's what the intention of the Messiah was. In Acts 2, verses 36, it says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Next quick one is Passion. Um, many of you have heard of the film, The Passion of the Christ, and understand, and not maybe understand why is it called The Passion. And it's because the original um, Latin is passio, which has two meanings. It means both what we understand as passion and what we also understand as suffering. So it effectively means the suffering of Christ. That's a good one that some people might randomly ask you, why is it the passion? And it's because passion actually also means suffering. So we go back to the Great Commission, make disciples of all nations. Let's have a wrong answer then. This is a tough one, even, even for uh, wrong answers. Has anyone had a wrong answer about what a disciple is? Or perhaps discipleship? And Louise? Okay. Just following someone, yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm? Is that a wrong answer? Is that a right answer? Yeah. Depending, exactly. You're right. It's the same as, uh, you know, James's wrong answer in that part of discipleship is following Jesus, but it's not the whole answer. And that's what some people believe. It's just... A disciple is someone who follows Jesus. But the truth is, there's much more to it than that. And that's a real challenge for me. I remember when I first was, you know, thinking about the Great Commission as something that I have to do as a Christian. I thought, oh, this is great. I just have to go tell people about Jesus and I'm fulfilling the Great Commission. But it doesn't say go tell people. It says make disciples. There's something more to that than just sharing the gospel. That's evangelism, and we're going to come back to it. Disciples were people who, uh, in Jesus' time, 
followed them. So the disciples were fishing. Jesus said, come follow me. And in the culture, it was fine for them to just drop the nets and go follow Jesus. It's almost like a university lecturer walking through the streets and saying, come follow me. And you just leave wherever you are and, and go with them and learn from them. You learn what they're teaching. You're getting an education. But you're also supposed to imitate the life of your discipler. <laughs> Sorry, this is going to get confusing. It's discipler, discipling, disciple, discipleship. I'll try and try and keep it clear. But the person who is discipling you or who you are learning from is someone who should be someone you can imitate. And that's why you need to be careful about the people that you learn from and that you are discipled by. Now, obviously, Paul addressed the confusion that can occur here in that some people say, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Jesus. And the point is, if someone is teaching you, if they're discipling you, if there's a more one-on-one -on -one relationship in terms of bringing you up in faith, they should be pointing you to Jesus, not to themselves. They should be showing, I'm trying to live more like Jesus. So when you imitate me, you're imitating someone trying to live more like Jesus. Jesus also said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, that's a challenge. And it's a crazy thing for him to say before he'd been crucified, because all the definitions that we as Christians understand there, um, they, they didn't realize the fulfillment of what the cross meant. Um, another way in um, which you might hear is, um, as I said, a person discipling someone. So it's bringing you up in the faith. That's the way I like to describe it. It's, uh, it's as I said, it's education, but it's, it's nurturing. It's caring for someone. It's much more than just the university lecturer if he only cares that you learn. They care about your well-being as well. A disciple cares about your well-being. And the last point, and I was, again, terrified and challenged by this. Someone said, you're not a real disciple unless, and I panicked. I was like, okay, have I been discipling people well? Because am I a good disciple? And they said, if the person that you're discipling is not bringing people to church or inviting people to church, then you haven't discipled them. I breathe a sigh of relief <laughs> because it's something I encourage and it's something that people who I have discipled have done. They invite people to church. They're discipling them. They're just trying to disciple other people. They're trying to spread the gospel. As Jesus said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So again, we're not trying to make people who come to church and read their Bible. We're trying to make disciples. Uh, I mean, that was heavy for me as well. I don't know how you're all feeling. So we'll do three more quick fire ones. Gospel. This is very simple. This means good news. When it comes to Christianity, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. It's that he is our savior. That's it. That's the gospel. What that means and how we express it is a big topic, but the answer is good news. Atonement. Um, there are significant books written on atonement. Um, I don't know how many hours I would have to preach. Um, 
I tried to get the most concise uh, definitions I, as I could. So if anyone's taking notes, uh, Owen, can you put it up on the screen? There you go. <laughs> Just uh, jot that down quickly. I'm going to give you an inadequate summary. It's the understanding that Christ's sacrifice not only covers our sins, but makes it as if they've been taken away from us. The Bible says, as far as the East is from the West, that's how far our sins are taken. It's as if we never committed them in the first place. If we accept Jesus, we are holy and acceptable before God. And I know some people in your hearts right now, that might be a tough thing to hear, but God accepts us. He loves us. He brings us in because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Whatever you're feeling guilty about, whatever the enemy torments you with, when you receive Jesus, God doesn't even see that anymore. The, the crazy mystery of the Bible, well, one of many, is that it says that God forgets our sins. It's as if they didn't happen. I can't stress enough how inadequate a definition of atonement that is, but that's, that's a brief for you. And then another quick one then is intercession. This is a word you might hear a lot in church or amongst prayer groups. And again, it's a simple one. It's to pray on behalf of others. So you might get a text and someone's in a rush. I'm going to the doctor, please pray for me. When you pray, you're interceding. You're praying to God on their behalf. Someone might say, I'm going into an exam. I need help, please pray for me. Then you intercede. Romans tells us in the same way, the spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. That's an amazing thing that we have an advocate. Oh no, advocate's a big word that we have a helper who's on our side, who, um, who prays for us when we don't know what to pray. And it'll be the same for friends of yours. Someone will say, maybe they're a new Christian, maybe they're not a Christian at all. And they'll say, I don't know how to do it. Will you pray for me? And that's when you intercede on their behalf. So the next big topic is evangelism or evangelize. Um, wrong answers. Can anyone tell? I mean, I've already given you some clues through this talk, but does anybody have a wrong answer for what evangelism is? Yes. Actually, that's the right answer. <laughs> but well done for getting the right answer. Um, as I said earlier, I felt pressure when I realized that as part of the Christian faith, we need to um, evangelize. Discipling is educating Christians, as I said, but evangelism is aimed at those that are outside of the church, okay? So when you're discipling someone, when you're educating them, the best practice is that you know more than them. I think that goes without saying, but the point is that they're able to learn from you. When it comes to evangelism, it's not education in the same way. If you were to consider the university lecturer a disciple, uh, someone discipling someone, then you would almost consider it a Sunday school teacher teaching kids what evangelism is. It's the basics. It's the simplest concepts. It's sharing the gospel. 
again, you know, if you're not 100% sure on what the gospel is, you need help with uh, how to share it, go back and watch my talk. It's online. It's available on YouTube. But, uh, but the point is, it's just simply sharing the good news. So evangelism, it's something that we have to get out of our chairs to do. You know, there may be some people who aren't Christians who come to church, and then you have the task of identifying who they are and trying to share the gospel with them. Let me tell you, if you're trying to find someone who doesn't know the gospel, walk out that door, and within two minutes, you'll bump into someone who doesn't know the gospel. It's what Jesus did. He shared the good news. If we're going to imitate Christ, we need to share the good news. In Matthew 28, oh, sorry, no. Why have I got that there? I think I've got my notes all mixed up. Um, yeah, it means to share the word. I'm going to like, you know, just chat a bit here while I try and find my next set of page. Um, being a, a missionary in Magaluf, um, I don't have my last page. Um, I find pressure to um, share the gospel with people because I felt that um, there was a prerequisite to that, that these people have to come to church. And if I haven't shared the gospel, I have failed. And I'm, I should just give up. I was wrong. God didn't want me to come here. Now, fortunately, people have, uh, have come to church with me when I've invited them. But it's not a, a measure of success or failure when you're sharing the gospel. If people come, it's your responsibility to share the gospel. The Bible says it's the Holy Spirit's to bring them to Christ. It's, it's through the, the working of the Spirit that they actually change their lives and become Christians. So evangelism, I said, is simply to share the word. Um, I'm afraid I'm just going to run down the back and grab my, my laptop so I can get my notes because... I don't have the last page. Talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> I don't know. Still out of that happened. Well, it's still my I'm so glad we have a very good video editor that can cut that out of the talk when it goes online. <laughs> I need to do some sort of magic trick, though, that a Mac magically appears in the middle of it. So, as I said, Jesus said, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. That's the important point. We don't know what time we have on this earth. We don't know when we meet people, how much time they have. Again, that's a challenge. That's a scary thing to say. But the point is that there is hope for everyone beyond this life. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is. And it's not being ushered in, in revelation. It's already here. When Jesus said the kingdom has come near, I mean, he literally means this is the, the atheist, and Jesus has like stood close to them. It's that near to them, and they just need to receive it. And that's when it goes from near to here. That's when they join the kingdom of heaven. So again, if you're a follower of Christ, you need to share the good news. Again, that's a challenge. 
and let it sit with you. Don't let the enemy, now what I want to say is with all these challenges, don't let the enemy condemn you or make you feel guilty. Be convicted by the Spirit to move, yes, but don't feel, oh no, I'm a failure, I haven't done it. Because your testimony, and I'm going to come to that in evangelism, is one of the greatest ways of sharing the good news. Just being a Christian in this world will change lives. I'll come back to that. So that was a heavy one again. We'll go for some quick ones. Hallelujah. I'm not just saying that. I mean, that's all said. That's all said. Come on. Hallelujah. Praise ye God is sort of a transliteration of what, it, what that word actually means. But it is, it's that simple. It just means praise God. You may have heard it in songs, especially around Christmas. And you may have thought, oh, that's a nice word. What does that mean? It's simple. It means praise God. And I think most people understand that, but why not define it? And similarly, there's Hosanna, which a literal translation, uh, translation means to save. Thanks, Owen. It also means praise the Savior. Um, <laughs> uh, the most common use is an exclamation of praise, Hosanna. You know, we, you know, we have songs with Hosanna in it. So if you combine the translation of save and you combine the common use of praise, it is praise the Savior. Next is resurrection. Again, this is a complicated one that can be simplified. So don't get me wrong, this is not comprehensive. Um, but resurrection doesn't mean coming back to life. So when Jesus raised Lazarus, he raised him back to life. He didn't resurrect him. Resurrection is where we get a new body. And to not complicate things, I'll just give the, the biblical definition. First Corinthians says, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. The splendor of the heavenly bodies is of one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The point being, when we are raised to life, we receive a new spiritual body. Again, there's a lot of mystery around that. But the point is the resurrection is coming into, into your new body. And when we see when Jesus was raised, although he had scars, he wasn't recognized by people. He was, he was kept from their understanding. There was something different about what happened to him. When Lazarus came out, people didn't go, who's that guy? Why was he in Lazarus's tomb? They receive him back and go, this is him. But Jesus was kept from their understanding because he was the resurrected Jesus. Um, so, big topic now, apologetics. I, I just love, actually, first of all, a show of hands. Who has heard that word before? Actually, well, cool. I would say about 50% of us here. That's good. Who's got some wrong answers for me on what apologetics is? There's a very obvious one. Absolutely. Thank you. Apologetics is not apologizing for the gospel. It's not walking up to saying to someone, I've got good news for you, I'm really sorry. <laughs> it comes from the word apologia, and I'm not going to get into that too much. But the point is, apologetics is about giving an account for your faith. In First Peter, he says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Sorry, I, I even lost myself while I was reading that. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. As I said earlier, 
your testimony is a powerful tool. What God has done in your life is a powerful tool. Some of you here on one end of the scale might have been going through awful circumstances and God transformed your heart. Your circumstances might not have changed, but you changed. And when people see an inexplicable change in the midst of horrible circumstances, that blows their minds. There's not an explanation. There's not an earthly explanation for that. Something miraculous has happened. On the other end of the scale, you may have had a great life. Things might have been going well, and you met Jesus for some reason, and your life was transformed. You were completely changed. You had everything that life had to offer, and somehow now you have fulfillment. The fulfillment you thought you had has now been replaced by true fulfillment. That's a powerful testimony because so many people will look at that and go, you had everything. So why are you saying that not you have everything? It's a mystery and it's compelling and it's something that will bring people to Jesus. Apologetics, on the other hand, this is something where when you get into debate with people about Christianity, this is, this is truly defending the faith. And that's what apologetics is. It's giving not just an account for your faith, but an account for Christianity. In some ways, it's academic. It's not necessarily theological, although it includes theology. It's trying to win people with arguments. And I have to really be clear about this point. Apologetics will not save someone. Jesus saves. Okay? You cannot argue someone into Christianity. But you can argue them to open their heart in some ways. The thing that I find most when I'm evangelizing is that people tend to have this one thing that keeps them from church or from accepting Christianity or from being open. These things will sound uh, familiar to you. It'll be something like, I'm a good person. Surely that's good enough for me to go to heaven. They'll say, why is there suffering in the world? They'll say, evolution disproves the Bible. They'll say, the Bible was just written by some bloke and now everybody believes it. The thing is, I find when I have these conversations with people, they don't expect a response. As I said at the start, with our youth, they, they grew up in the faith, they have a personal faith, but they don't have understanding. So when someone asks them a question, they, they don't know how to answer. And the interesting thing is with adults, frequently when they're asked a question, they don't know the answer either. And I find that if you have the most basic answer to those questions and you give something to them back, they, one, they're not expecting it. Trust me, they have said it to a hundred Christians already. And those Christians have gone, oh, um, yeah, I know, I know that's hard to explain, but you know, God is good. You know, they don't have a response. I met a guy last year in Magaluf, and he was a militant atheist, I would say. He was a fan of all the popular speakers on atheism. And he came up to me and he said, you know, I don't believe in this heavenly North Korea. And I said, you're quoting Christopher Hitchens. And then he said, do you believe in as many gods as I do, except one more, you know, are you, you disbelieve? So you say millions of these gods don't exist, but there's only one more. So we're, we're close. And I said, you're quoting Ricky Gervais. 
a comedian. The point is this guy had all these arguments and he had not once had someone push back to him. And the fact that I could then even quote the people that he was quoting and say, that's where you're getting this from. It was a three-hour conversation on apologetics. I was on my way to bed, I think, and I was passing the bar, that, a place that I frequently evangelize, and I was desperately tired. And I ended up there till 3 a.m. talking to this guy. And the point is, every argument that he thought would floor me, I had an answer for. Now, that's an extreme case. The point that I want to make to you guys today is that when someone comes to you, as I said, most people have that one thing. If you have just the slightest grain of pushback to that and you give them a different way to think about it or look at it, it'll open them to thinking, oh, this firm stance, this place that I've gone, this is the reason it doesn't exist. I've just heard something to give me doubt, to doubt my firm position of where I stand as an atheist. Apologetics is a specialization. For some people, it's what they want to put all their time into. And it's a deep one. You know, it's worth going to a Bible college for even. But for us as Christians, it's something that has surface level basics that we can look at. That's our last big definition. I've only got one small one left. And it's salvation. Now, this is very close to atonement. But the main point is Jesus re uh, rescues us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus saves our souls. And that's what I want to leave you with today, that Jesus is the Savior. I, as I said, I've set challenges out for you. If any of you feel guilty because of the challenges I've said, that was not my intention. It's not God's intention. The prayer team will be here. Come pray about it. I want you to be inspired. I want you to feel uncomfortable in your seat, not because of guilt, but because it's like, yeah, do you know what? This is what it really means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to be a disciple of my Savior, that I have been saved and I want other people to be saved and I'm going to take that message out with me. So to summarize the challenges, this is the weirdest slide I've ever done. Never thought I'd have a summary of challenges, but it's follow Jesus. That's to be uh, a Christian. I encourage everybody here. It's, it's not accepting Jesus and it's not believing Jesus. It's following Jesus. There's more to the Christian life than just that. It's to constantly learn from him. It's to read your Bible every day. It's to pray every day. It's to know him. Follow Jesus. Do what he did. Worship God as well. I want to encourage you guys. We have... Uh, program on Wednesday nights called Worship Night Wednesday, and the only purpose is to come and worship God. Sometimes we look at the Bible, we definitely have lots of prayer, but the key component for that night is worship. And if you want to come and worship with us, please do. Know the scriptures. As I said, Jesus knew the scriptures. We're actually um, starting today, um, a group of us, the Bible in a year. And we're using it in the Bible app, and uh, it's with uh, Nicky Gumbel and his wife. And they started the Alpha Course, which is the basics of Christianity. Um, and so I want to encourage anybody who wants to be involved in that, join us in doing that. There's going to be a QR code at the end, which is for a WhatsApp group. And if you join that WhatsApp group, it has all the information. If you don't have WhatsApp or you don't know how QR codes work or anything else, come see me afterwards and, uh, and we can get you involved. But it's a great way to encourage yourself 
and to encourage others to get into the Bible. It's the Bible in a year. You know, so many people think the Bible is insurmountable. It's a huge book, and it's not just a book, it's a library of books, but you can do it in a year very easily. It's not, I've got an OCD system by which I read it, and it's semi-laborious, but, you know, it gets me through the Bible. It cuts things up so that it's, it's chunks from uh, four parts generally of the Bible. So it's, it's a great way to do it. If you want to join us, please do. Again, don't feel guilty if you miss a day. You just go on to the next day or you catch up. But it's just to encourage you. Evangelize. Share the word. And uh, there's a famous quote. I can't remember who by, but it's um, share, the, share the gospel and if necessary, use words. Live a good life. Yesterday, not yesterday, a couple of days ago, there was someone who I've seen a lot on Magaluf and he was behind me in Aldi and he was just buying a drink and he was on his phone. So when he wasn't looking, I took the barrier away and I just paid for his drink. And when I'd finished, he looked up to pay for his uh, drink and realized that I was holding it. And I, he, I said, I bought, your, I bought your drink for you. And he said, oh, thanks, uh, happy new year. And I said, we've met before six years ago. I've, you know, I'd wanted to reconnect with him. I needed an excuse. That was my way. I did something nice for him. I shared the goodness of God. And now the door is open that I can share the gospel with him. It's as simple as that. There's just wee ways that in everyday life that you can uh, give yourself opportunity. And as I said, make disciples. This is the complicated one. This is the difficult one. It's the one that you have to... Actually, do you know what? Raf's not here, so I'm going to give you a recommendation. Um, and he has to live up to it. If you want to disciple someone, if you feel there's someone in your life you need to specifically focus on, come talk to Raf or come talk to me, but I'll probably just point you to Raf and say, I think I need to disciple this person. I think I need to focus on this person. Have a chat, have a prayer with him and let him help you decide if that's, if that's the right thing for you. Because it, discipleship is a responsibility. It's a big responsibility and it takes many forms. Um, we're all called to make disciples but to have that really you know, significant one-on-one -on -one discipleship, um, it's something that, yeah, it's worth getting some wisdom from Rathlon. That's everything I have to say. Um, I'm just going to close with a prayer, and then the girls are going to come up and uh, lead with us. This is the QR code. Um, I'll get Owen, thanks Owen, I'll get him to also put it up after uh, the worship. Um, if you can scan it now uh, as the girls come up. Um, It'll get you into the WhatsApp group. All the information is in the um, in the group description. But I'll also after today share or later today share a message uh, with all the information as well. So, Father God, we just we thank you that Jesus is our Savior. We thank you that that is the good news and that is the simple gospel that we need to share with people. Lord, we thank you that our testimony and what you have done in our lives is a powerful tool for sharing the gospel and who you are. Lord, I just pray for every person here that any pressure or guilt or shame or condemnation that would come from the enemy about this, I release them from that in the name of Jesus. I pray your protection over them that they would not experience that. Lord, your word says that you love a cheerful giver. And so, God, may we be free of the schemes of the enemy so that we can cheerfully share the gospel. We can cheerfully share the good news. And Lord God, I just pray that all these concepts that we've talked about today, 
Um, <laughs> there was 18 for, for people to go through, so there was a lot to take in. I pray that discussions after, Lord, would help people to uh, grow their understanding, Lord God. I pray that we as a church would educate each other and that we would feel comfortable to come to each other to discuss these things and to, to have greater understanding. So when we are, have to give an account for our faith, when someone asks, what does that mean that we know the answer? Lord God, we thank you that you're good, that you're our provider and that we can trust in you. We thank you for this new year. We thank you for all that you're going to do in this new year. And we look forward in hope, trusting in you that good things are coming and that you're going to surprise us if we just seek you and seek your will. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.